Human Rights in Transit is a collaborative project that engages the ongoing and emerging tensions that are at the center of contemporary global existence. As people struggle for their lives as migrants, refugees, citizens, and indeed as humans, there is also a radical decentering and even crisis of the human underway. From technology, bioscience, and environmental transformations to decolonial critiques of humanism, the category of the human and the future of the humanities is deeply uncertain. This podcast features conversations on the myriad dynamics and processes that speak to the fact that human rights and the idea of the human are in transit. To inquire, learn more, or get involved, you can visit our website at u.osu.edu slash h-r-i-t. Hello, and welcome back to Human Rights in Transit. I'm Jennifer Suchland, faculty here at Ohio State and part of the HRIT Collaborative. Today, I'm joined with my co-host, Pritha Prasad. Hi, I'm Pritha Prasad. Um, I'm a PhD student um, in the Rhetoric, Composition, and Literacy program um, in the Department of English here at OSU. Great. Today, we welcome Dr. Karma Chavez. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you here. Dr. Karma Chavez is Associate Professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina Latino Studies at UT Austin. She is the author of Queer Migration Politics, uh, which won the Book of the Year by the LGBTQ Communication Studies Division of the National Communication Association. She is co-editor of Text Plus Field, as well as co-editor of Standing in the Intersection. Dr. Chavez is the co-founder of the Queer Migration Research Network, an interdisciplinary research initiative that critically examines how migration processes fuel the production, contestation, and remaking of sexual and gender norms, cultures, communities, and politics. Dr. Chavez is part of activist endeavors as well, including with the group Against Equality, and she produced the radio show A Public Affair for six years on 89.9 FM W-O-R-T in Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. So we're super excited to have you here today at Ohio State University. And uh, Pritha and I are going to ask some questions to talk about your work and your thoughts about activism and scholarship. And we thought we could start with this concept that you develop in your book uh, called Coalitional, or Coalitional Moment. Um, and this is out of Queer Migration Politics. And so... This concept of coalitional moment speaks to the possibilities and contingencies of coalition, uh, especially as you've worked on it um, to explore uh, the intersections of queer migration politics, understood in your work as activism that seeks to challenge normative inclus inclusionary perspectives at the intersection of queer rights and justice, as well as immigration rights and justice. So can you talk more about this concept you developed through your work in that book uh, around this idea of the coalitional moment um, as it pertains to queer migration politics, uh, you know, particularly for our listeners who haven't yet had the chance, but they should very soon reach out and, and grab your book and, and read it. Sure. Well, one of the things that I had been thinking about when I was working on the research for that book was what was sort of a disconnect between the way that activists I was working with in Tucson, mm -hmm. Arizona – we're talking about what was a coalition, what was alliance, what was what did solidarity mean, mm -hmm. versus how women of color feminism talked about these things, mm -hmm. which was in, 
pretty particular ways. So alliance as this kind of longstanding thing, a coalition as a temporary, more strategic thing. And solidarity is kind of like, you know, you put the button on your backpack or whatever it is. Right. And that was very different than activists who, for them, coalition was this kind of long-term thing. Okay. And alliance, they struggled with the word alliance. Like they found alliance to be kind of a, a flimsy thing. And it just didn't resonate with them at all. And so I started to think, well, if you're you know trying to use terms that are coming from your communities that you're working with and making connections with the theory, but also challenging theory through community, of course, because the community was all women of color too. And I started to think, well, maybe we need to just think differently about what coalition does and what it can do. And also not only thinking of it as strategic and not only thinking of it as temporary, but as sort of these ripe moments that have possibility to them. And it made a lot of sense for me in thinking about queer immigration because while certainly there were some very long-standing alliances or coalitions, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. a lot of what was happening, particularly in the mid-2000s with queer immigration or queer migration politics, as I call it in the book, were these moments where people are coming together and they might lead to long-term relationships. They were definitely leading to long-term analysis, mm-hmm. but they weren't coalitions in the kind of formal sense. And so I was trying to use this term coalitional moment to describe this kind of coming together that I actually think is descriptive of the way that a lot of activists do work. But that's actually not a demeaning thing or strategic thing only. It's Mm -hmm. actually a big part of how you build long-term relationships or don't, Mm -hmm. and then especially build analysis. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious, too, about... The idea that coalition is about discrete uh, groups coming together for a common goal Mm. and the way that uh, through your engagement with women of color theorizing how um, coalition can mean something more even profound than that, right? Suggesting that um, it's not just sort of adding another name to add to the end of a sponsorship, but in fact that one comes to see the politics and the stakes of one's own project as being constituted through or connected uh, to other um, groups that don't seem to be, mm-hmm. you know, um, the same, you know, group of people. Yeah. And that was really coming through in your work around queer migration uh, politics. And so did you see the groups thinking about that, how the stakes of what they were doing were actually invested and related to the lives and the survival of others. Yeah. And so that idea of like then coalitional subjectivity or coalitional consciousness, so building on Cricket Keating's work, who was here for so long, uh, and Amy Carrillo-Rowe's work, um, and thinking about how do you start to take on Mm -hmm. the sense of the other as part of the sense of self. And that was something that I really began to see, especially when I was in Tucson. On, but then throughout the, mm-hmm. the work that I've done is how that process happens. So what are the moments where, in particular, I was thinking about white, queer activists who very much wanted to be in solidarity with immigrant justice work and with undocumented immigrant communities and that process of actually starting to feel it in a certain sense and then bring it into the sense of self. And there was one of my good friends now, but a participant way back in the day, you know, mm-hmm. she said, there, there comes a moment when you can't 
possibly see yourself mm-hmm. without also seeing this issue as part of you. Um, and that right. is that kind of coalitional subjectivity where you're no longer just like, I'm a queer activist. It's like, well, mm-hmm. this is integral to who I am. Yeah. And I was thinking too about the work, the particularly of thinking beyond the horizon of that queer migration politics is about um, couples, queer couples, right, gaining access to immigration rights or to um, visas, Mm -hmm. right, that um, sort of pushing the boundaries of, well, what is, what what are queer migration politics and really thinking about the transit of those concepts um, and not just sort of aligning with traditional ideas of what that might mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that was kind of what I wanted to do in the book is not to say that binational same-sex couples, Mm -hmm. which is the kind of standard subject when we think of putting LGBT politics and immigration politics together, Mm -hmm. we're thinking about the binational same-sex couple. Um, So not to say that that's not important because, of course, it is in the same way that marriage is important. If that's the way we get rights, then, you know, that's an important way to get rights. Um, also not to say that it's we shouldn't have LGBT asylum, mm-hmm. right, where people right. are able to seek protection in the United States, for example, mm-hmm. because they're persecuted in their own country. Um, but it is to say that there are lots of other ways in which we can see queer politics and immigration politics coming together that um, – that actually implicate more than just the immediate subjects who are impacted, the binational couple, the asylum seeker, right. uh, but actually the entire movement, for example. Mm-hmm. What are the ways in which it relies upon heteronormativity, ideas about family, mm-hmm. ideas about um, you know certain kinds of values related to the church that actually are damaging to the very immigrant communities that they're trying to lift up. And mm-hmm. so um, that was kind of the... The thing I was trying to uplift Mm -hmm. is these other ways that queer and immigration were coming together. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, One of the things that keeps coming up in this discussion that I find super interesting is this idea of calling um, or characterizing coalition as like a moment um, and kind of what that says about coalition and just temporality. Um, And I know this is, you know, something that is also comes up in your work a little bit of like, um, s- sort of the larger structural changes um, being somewhat on the horizon as being sort of like an energy around which to organize um, in, in various moments that are very like grounded in a present um, and kind of survivalist context. So I just was wondering how that might actually um, change the way we think about coalition too, um, which is generally like you know, to discrete groups organizing around a common goal, because I think that might challenge even what we think of as like a common goal. Um, because what what I'm hearing here is that when groups come together in these coalitional moments, they are pulling from their resources in that moment, um, even if they might have sort of different ideas of like what the future would look like, they might have a different future they're trying to cultivate. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could say a little bit um, more about how you see um, mm-hmm. moment as being something different. Um, Yeah. hmm. One of the reasons I came to the idea of the moment was because I think it's both spatial and temporal. And so Mm, a moment is a juncture, which I think is a spatial metaphor. uh, And it's also this moment, right? It's kind of a a, a thing that happens in the present. And uh, we imagine it usually to be of short duration. 
but it's usually significant. I mean, if you have a moment, it's, it's of significance in some way. And so I was thinking about how moment then brings together mm-hmm. these two planes, the spatial and the temporal. And I think what that implies then is, one, it's, it's, it is very present. It's, of course, future-oriented in a way, but it's about drawing on what exists right now, what can we do with it here in this moment, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me... Um, the moment creates a, a space for pause to um, see where we are right? Um, and to draw from that. Mm-hmm. Because one of the problems, especially when we think about radical or progressive politics, is that we are constantly in emergency mode. Right. And um, I think the moment also is is somewhat of a reminder to say, okay, we don't, we actually can be very strategic, even as we're also mm. fighting everything that's right. happening right now. Right. Well, in terms of thinking about uh, the moment, uh, we were also talking earlier about there seem to be maybe there's some possibilities right now. Uh, there's been a lot of activism in the wake of the election, uh, the last presidential election. People who hadn't been involved in politics or hadn't seen the intersections uh, before saw them anew, uh, were getting involved in new ways. And so um, Pritha and I were just talking about there seem to be so many examples right now of people getting involved. And we wondered uh, with the work that you're involved in or the way that you're assessing the contemporary moment, at least in the United States, do you see, uh, you know, how can we cultivate uh, coalitional moments? But also, do you think there are signs of emergent coalitional practices happening that are inspiring? Mm-hmm. So um, some of the examples that um, we were thinking about uh, were like kneeling for the national anthem, which obviously, I mean, has a sort of like larger um, sort of structural rhetorical appeal. (laughs) Um, But it also like I think depending on where it emerges has a a particular like local um, it might have a local context to which it's speaking. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So and then also like the hashtag me Too, um, march for our lives. uh, protests around gun control and also sort of the accompanying parallel discussions about um, the racial politics or maybe the lack of conversation about um, gun violence and police brutality um, and not seeing sort of police officers as being part of this larger problem of gun control. Um, and then, you know, like how, like how do you see those emerging in local and global and transnational contexts? And like what are, you know, do you see potential in those kinds of coalitional moments? I guess those are the ones that we've sort of defined, but you might have others that you might want to add to that. Um, Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we can always find what I call coalitional moments. I think they're, Mm -hmm. they're everywhere all the time. If, if we're kind of using that as an analytic to understand what people are doing, I do think uh, the last several years, and it's not just Trump, and I think that's also important yeah. in this historical moment mm-hmm. to say, for example, you know, Black Lives Matter takes off in the midst of the Obama administration, yeah, right? Absolutely. So, you know, Obama handles this right. in all sorts of ways. Um, immigration, of course, under oh, yeah. Obama was wretched. Horrible, horrible. So, it's, so yeah. I think it's important to note that it's not just this Trump moment, but Trump has also incited yeah. all sorts of things that are really important for us to think about. I think one of the best examples 
of what I think of as a kind of coalitional moment at, at its best that we've seen very recently, of course, is, is what the Parkland students are doing in response to bringing in students of color, Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. um, the meetings they've had with students in Chicago related to gun violence there, related to how uh, the issue actually of violence is, is far more impactful mm-hmm. in communities of color, how they're signaling the way that the media is ignoring the 25% of their own high school that's actually black. Right. Uh, and right. so using their privilege to bring uh, the intersectional analysis into mm-hmm. the question of gun violence. So, And I think it's just brilliant how they're calling out the only reason you've cared about us is because we're a bunch of rich kids who are really well-spoken and mm-hmm. we're mostly white. Um, and I also think you know, the backlash against Emma Gonzalez, for example, who's become this face. She's a queer woman of color. Mm -hmm. You know, she's Mm -hmm. very bold in what she's doing uh, and how, you know, of course, uh, what's the other kid's name, David Hogg, that he's been attacked too, but it's quite different, the nature of those attacks uh, and how they're kind of mapping back and forth. And they seem to just have this amazing worldview, Mm -hmm. watching exactly what's happening Mm -hmm. and then tying it back into these other issues and calling out exactly what's happening. And I think, um, you know, who knows where this is going to go? I'm not Mm -hmm. as optimistic maybe as other people about (laughs) that this is the dawn of a new movement, et cetera. But it is, I think, a profound coalitional moment. And Mm -hmm. it's bringing attention to issues that haven't been mm-hmm. viewed like black communities uh, arguing for their communities to be safer, for example, through Black Lives Matter or movement for black lives hasn't been mapped onto the issue mm-hmm. of school shootings like we're seeing it now because of what the Parkland students are right. sort of opening up. Right. And those are such racialized rhetorical uh, differences, right? Mm-hmm. Even just thinking about Ohio, where we have um, you know a lot of attention on an opioid uh, crisis, uh, so-called, you know, opioid. Certainly there are uh, a lot of deaths and there are issues related to it. Uh, but how that is uh, addressing a population that's primarily white and poor and rural, mm-hmm. and we don't talk about it, we don't criminalize that, you know, rhetorical discussion, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's about a public health crisis. Right. Whereas, you know, coming from other places that are uh, dealing with, you know, drug abuse or uh, the, you know, deinvestment in community, these, you know, public health issues get cast as criminal problems. And uh, so just the rhetorical differences there, you know, are so profound in how the social response and where empathy comes from and, you know, just the whole, the whole apparatus. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, one of the other things that um, I'm here that I'm hearing in this conversation is um, so like I really like what you said, Karma, about kind of like resisting this idea that like Trump is this some like somehow an exceptional moment um, because I think that like a lot of times like in the mainstream this is how like these coalitional moments get conceived of as mm-hmm. like you know Trump is this like um, anomalous thing that's happened that's sort of like activated all these movements that never existed before right. um, which obviously I think has a very like racial like underpinning to it because mm-hmm. these movements have existed always <laughs> Um, and I think that there, you know, there are certain like media channels through which these coalitions, I think, are fil- facilitated more sure. um, than maybe they were in the past. Um, but I also, you know, when we talk about like, you know, the opioid crisis, right? Like, I think sometimes it's the language that we use um, or that the media uses um, that gets taken up that kind of creates this sense of moment as being like this mm-hmm. static thing that just like 
came out of like right. came out of nowhere. It right. just exists in a vacuum. Right. Um, so I, you know, I think it's interesting to think about the way that you conceive of coalitional moment as kind of like these, you know, maybe like multiple different you know forces kind of coming together mm-hmm. at a certain moment or intersecting at certain yeah. you know moments. Yeah, and the importance of historicizing right. how we get mm-hmm. here. Uh, and I think that, you know, the what you've just said is exactly right on. It's like the same phenomenon that happens right after the election. Maybe you experienced it in your classes, too, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden and I, I don't mean to put this on like just white queer students, but there were a lot of white queer students who all of a sudden felt more unsafe than they ever had before. Right. And they were expressing it and they wanted support in all these ways. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like. Yes, I do want to support you, but please look around to your colleagues of color Mm -hmm. because they've been talking about this sense of fear long before this day. So just Mm -hmm. because you're now feeling it in a way that you haven't doesn't mean it didn't exist before you. Right. Right. And that that fear that predated Trump is actually just accelerated. Sure. So whatever fear is really, um, well, I would just say from what I can tell from Ohio, from the Ohio context, that certainly there was an issue of not having maybe been paying attention. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but also that the fear was a kind of bourgeois fear. It was an abstract mm. fear. It wasn't actually for one's physical daily life. Right. Right? I don't think that, um, you know, um, that that was necessarily a reality for most, you know, white middle class who yeah. were talking in these sort of rhetorically very crisis moment, you know, language yeah. um, for sure. For I sure. love that concept of the bourgeois fear. <laughs> That's exactly right. <clears throat> um, so uh, just taking up this idea of like, you know, history, like you say, is super important. And like, that's kind of how we end up in these like moments. Right. Um, so I was just recently reading the piece that you co-authored um, with Adela Lacona and Nana um, Ose-Kofi about the Afro-Swedish um, activist Maria Teresa Asplund and um, the kind of viral and transnational circulation of her clenched fist photograph. Um, and so in that piece, um, you identify this clenched fist as kind of like a relational or coalitional gesture that has sort of an ongoing political significance for confronting global racist violence. And obviously there's sort of a historical, um, it's a historical icon too. Um, so one topic that comes up in this piece, though, is kind of the there's a generative um, ambiguity of the coalitional of this particular coalitional gesture, but maybe of other coalitional gestures as well. Um, and uh, you all identify that are right that it's this ambiguity that makes it particularly relational and cross mm-hmm. um, contextual. So um, I'm just interested in this sort of reading of ambiguity, um, and especially since you know in academia, scholars who are interested in not just our scholarship, but also in activism or what's going on locally and globally, um, we often find ourselves in similarly sort of ambiguous or even paradoxical situations um, that kind of uh, require us to work both within and again and also against. So we kind of need to use this ambiguity in a in a strategic way. Um, so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about kind of the political potentiality of this kind of ambiguity in scholar activist context. Obviously, mm-hmm. you've thought critically about this I think more than than I have I don't <laughs> <So>. know <laughs> yeah I mean I think this is interesting so uh Tess Asplund who's this um member of the Sweden's Black Lives Matter movement and in April I believe it was April 2016 uh there's this big neo-Nazi march 
And she's this like very tiny little black woman. She's like five three. And uh, there's all these angry white men marching down the street. And she just kind of on a whim walks out in front of them and just raises her fist mm-hmm. and uh, right in their faces. And there just happened to be a journalist who snapped this picture and the picture goes viral. And so, as you say, my colleagues and I, we, we do this analysis of this piece. And part of what what's interesting is why it goes viral. And one of the reasons it goes especially viral, she's actually Afro-Colombian. So okay. she she was a, an adoptee in Sweden. So she's Swedish, she's black, and she's Latina. And so that that is mm-hmm. one, one of the reasons why it circulates. It, of course, it's also this very powerful image. And what she says, of course, is she's sort of talking in very um, liberal terms about equality. And of course, the symbol of the clenched fist, a black woman, like in the face of white people, is not really always historically a symbol of equality. It's actually mm-hmm. often signaling more radical politics. And so that's what makes it interesting and curious how this circulates in so many ways uh, that track on not just even those two strands, but there are other ways that this gets taken up too. And I think ambiguity is important and I actually think the double readings it doesn't mean like oh just because she says it's about equality it's like normative and no good and just trying to bolster or reform the system Um, but I think any of us connected to institutions are called in various ways to what Jose Munoz would call disidentify right Right. so work on and against at the same time and so uh, I think the idea of um, Harney and Moton's the undercommons is a similar notion Mm -hmm. here and so they say you know within the undercommons um, we're in but not of the university right and so what does that mean you don't just throw out the university. I mean, you can, but then you no longer have access to its resources, right? right? And so how do you use the university for its resources? How do you take up the space of the university um, for ends that aren't in line with the university? Um, Meanwhile, you know, still doing your job there. Uh, And so I think that kind of ambiguity, uh, that kind of working on and against being in but not of is a big part of, of... what an activist scholar, if you want to use that term, which is a am- mm-hmm. term I'm not always comfortable with, but um, yeah. what you have to do. Yeah. So why are you not always comfortable with that phrase, activist scholar? Can you say more about that? Yeah. I, I mean, I think along early on, that term felt very kind of comfortable mm-hmm. to, to me. And because I did a lot of work as an activist, and obviously I was trying to be a scholar, and then my scholarship really was – in, you know, line with what the activist communities were that I was researching with. Mm -hmm. So that made sense. I think there's a way in which I'm actually really persuaded by, there's this great book by, um, it's edited by Charlie Hale, who's at UT Austin. I don't know if you ever studied with him. He's in the anthropology department about activist scholarship. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion to that book, the afterword, is written by Joy James and Ted Gordon. Okay. So kind of black radicals. Yeah. And... One of the things they say in that conclusion is that the activist scholar, of course, is an, it's an important sub- subject position, right? We need activist scholars. But very often the activist scholar's work is just oriented toward the university mm-hmm. and 
serves the university. And so they, they juxtapose that with what they call the radical subject. Mm-hmm. And, and the radical subject might be doing the same kinds of research and the same kinds of interventions in a certain way, but it's, their loyalties are actually to collectivities outside of the institution. And even though they might be, we're all used by the institution if we do. I mean, this mm-hmm. podcast makes OSU look great, right? Because human rights. <laughs> so we're all, we can't help it. We're all used by the institution. Yeah. But the radical subject doesn't buy that. The radical subject mm-hmm. is in relation to collectivities outside. The activist scholar in their reading is more apt to kind of be invested in the fact that right. this looks good for the institution. And so I, I just, yeah. I'm not opposed to it, but I think that that... Mm-hmm. I resonate with what they had to say about that. Right. You know, that's really interesting. I mean, obviously within like feminist studies and, you know, um, I'm also, you know, women's gender and sexuality studies. This is a conversation that happens a lot uh, around, you know, is being part of an, institu- you know, an institution like the like a university, particularly a university that's becoming corporatized. Yeah. You know, that we seemingly do not have a commitment as much as we used to, to, you know, public education. Sure. And instead we're, you know, Coca-Cola or Co-Brothers or, you know, mm-hmm. what have you. Um, so, but one thing, too, in terms of having, you know, where, where are you, what are your commitments to? Uh, you know, the activist circles are also not utopias, mm-hmm. right? They also have their, can potentially have their own problems and uh, pathologies, right? And so... Um, and I think it's important to also not romanticize the outside of those institutions because yeah. it's, you know, they're very hazy. Talk about ambiguous, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if you have thoughts about that. But. Yeah, no, I think that's so important. And I think it's, um, I think that's one of the reasons that uh, uh, James and Gordon in this piece, they mm-hmm. intentionally use the term collectivities. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about mm-hmm. even necessarily activists, but it's like, what is the community that you want to be your community. Like when you go home at night, not that we should glorify the term home either, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, on and on. But uh, when, you know, who, who, who actually, where's your loyalty lie? I think is the question they're asking. And so, and, and that doesn't mean because a collectivity is a utopia. I mean, if we think of uh, insights, you know, the revolution starts at home, right. all about mm-hmm. uh, domestic violence. Any of us who've been in activist circles, we know the like activist bro who actually mm-hmm. is a date rapist or, you know, whatever it is. And um, so, but of course, our communities are the, the imperfect nature of our communities is, is part of why we have to be loyal to them and, and keep working to make them better. Uh, and for me, it's like, yeah, as I think about it, I'd much rather <laughs> do that work in the collectivities outside of the institution. Sometimes with the people mm-hmm. from the institution, right, right, but right. not for the institution, right. Yeah, that's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I actually also am thinking now about the term scholar activist. I think also implies a kind of equality between those two commitments mm. that you might have as a scholar and an activist. Yeah. Which, if you think about it, it kind of is paradoxical in a way too, because if you're a scholar by by just the nature of the work that you do, you are you are supporting the university. You yeah. are funneling your resources into the university, and then they are profiting off of that in whatever way mm-hmm. they are. Um, so you can't also – I mean, you can be both of those things at certain moments, but I think that to identify yourself as a scholar activist, I think there is a certain paradox there, too, um, now that I'm thinking about the term a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's also the question just – you don't have to go too much further on this if you don't want to, but just the question of 
the scholar meant to be objective or at least impartial mm-hmm. to a certain sense, even though obviously mm-hmm. we've all For critiqued sure. that. But mm-hmm. uh, the activist is decidedly not those things. And so mm-hmm. then what is the position of the scholar activist in this institution and who is it? that actually gets to profit from being a scholar activist and gets right. the recognition, often white men. Right. Uh, and, you know, if you're a, a, a black queer feminist, for example, who identifies as a scholar activist, like how does that actually even impact mm-hmm. your position to be in the institution? And so I think those issues are important too. Yeah, and then there's also the fact that there are a lot of activist groups and communities that um, are not – are very critical of like the work that scholars do. So, um, you know, there's a way in which it's not always a consensual sort of Mm -hmm. relationship there. Um, And that's important to consider, too, is that that power dynamic. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so interesting. I would love to talk more about that. Uh, But I think we should wrap up with uh, an opportunity for you to talk some about your current work, which is on sanctuary. And, uh, you know, you're critical of the um, these legal initiatives towards securing sanctuary, um, which are further attempts to work within the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were just hoping, given you'll give a talk today, uh, if you want to speak some, um, or Prith, if you want to add to this question as well. But Yeah, I, I think it, I find it so interesting how um, – you point out how sort of the legal initiatives towards securing sanctuary actually um, attempt to work within the law, so therefore they can't actually exist because um, sanctuary is supposed to be an extra legal act of civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I this isn't what my research is on, but I, you know, I had never really thought about that. Um, so I just I would love to hear you talk more about that notion of sanctuary and sort of the potential for it. Yeah. Um, I think that, that thank you for asking about that. I mean, I've been thinking about this for a while, and as we were talking earlier, Pritha, I started. I published a short piece uh, about a year ago, just kind of really kind of putting it out there that like maybe sanctuary isn't the thing for us. And then I've been um, working on this paper for for about a year um, and trying to figure out exactly what I want to say about sanctuary because. Um, as you look at the contemporary immigrant rights and justice movement, which is a big part of what my work is, right, we've now turned to sanctuary um, as like the thing that right. we should be doing. Um, and I'm interested in looking at it on university campuses in particular, public universities. And what you find is um, sanctuary actually is completely meaningless. Right. We're actually going to protect student records, which are already protected by FERPA, which is the Educational Mm -hmm. Records Act. And we're going to tell police that they can't, you know, ask for your immigration papers, unless, of course, there's a subpoena or other reason why. (laughs) And if you think about the ways in which students of color are already more criminalized than their white counterparts, and the reasons for which a subpoena might be um, gotten, you can see that that's essentially meaningless. And so what I'm trying to do is really point this out by looking at what these statements actually say and then kind of suggest what we need to do actually is non-institutional. And so I'm calling it a kind of right now queer politics of fugitivity. And so the queer politics is to be very confrontational in the way that we're going to say, no, actually, we're not going to do it this way. And we will actually mm-hmm. protect our 
community by mm-hmm. any means necessary. And the fugitivity part of it is, of course, sanctuary movements in the uh, 1980s uh, to the present day have their historical lineage in the protection of fugitive slaves. Uh, and then there's all this great theorizing about fugitivity uh, among black radicals. And so I'm saying, what if we kind of informed our thinking about sanctuary through this mm-hmm. thinking about and history of fugitivity um, and actually come up with ways to protect each other? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, that requires us to expand this out, not just to the most privileged DACA students on campus, which has been a lot of what the mm-hmm. conversation is, but you know, why are we not protecting uh, you know, black males on campus when they're targeted by the police? Why are we not offering sure. them sanctuary, right? And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm always, I mean, I guess that's my shtick is thinking about these things that everyone's like, man, this is so great. We should do this. And I'm like, well, actually, <laughs> yeah. it's not as great as it seems. Yeah, that's the feminist killjoy, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's all of our shtick, I guess, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, and actually, I've I've almost noticed sort of like a resurgence of these discourses of sanctuary um, post Trump, and I think it's just yeah. a discursive. It's part of this whole like crisis rhetoric that has um, kind of surrounded the uh, Trump's presidency. But I just saw it actually in this building um, on the the screen that was at the cafe. It said like this is a, a space of no hate, like no one should experience homophobia, etc. Like all of the isms, mm-hmm. um, and then it said like if you see any of these acts of hate or acts of violence, mm-hmm. like please report it to the campus police. Yeah, great. Um, so, and I, I and I really hadn't mm-hmm. even thought about that because and you see this rhetoric of sanctuary everywhere on campus. Yeah. Um, that actually, the history of that is um, actually I um, helped write that statement because um, there were white supremacy flyers posted all over right. this building several yeah. times. So we were trying to intimidate the students who were basically high, uh, hanging these incredibly racist white supremacy posters uh, around the building. And this building, Haggerty Hall, is a languages building. And so it's actually one of the most diverse buildings on campus. Uh, and so I, it was, I guess, an attempt at a counter discourse to those posters yeah. Um, so it wasn't meant to be schmaltzy, uh, you know, you know, liberalism, or even to invoke the idea of sanctuary, but just uh, as a gesture of okay, we're actually trying to pay attention to what's happening in this building, and you know, we're trying to be sensitive to students who, as we were mentioning earlier, actually do feel an increased sense of violence and intimidation in the current climate. You know, we had a student who was shot by police, um, you know, two years ago on this campus. It was, a, it was definitely a mental health issue. And instead of really dealing it as this was our student, we shot him. Right. It was immediately, this is someone who's done, you know, it was a, a criminalizing of him. Mm-hmm. And he was a, you know, Somali immigrant. And I'm still ashamed by how this university has responded to our student. Again, like right. thinking about mm-hmm. the university as an important space in which we are committed to each other, mm-hmm. right? It's your broader understanding of sanctuary, uh, I think, is has more that more profound mm-hmm. aspect to it. Yeah, yeah. And what you're saying, Jenny, I mean, it like, um, it just points out the kind of trap that you're in, right? Like mm-hmm. when when these kinds of things happen, like you are forced to use those resources of the university that that mm-hmm. often are the ones that are perpetuating these kinds of mm-hmm. violences. So um, that's why I think that's why this conversation is so super mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
Well, unfortunately, we'll have to wrap it up here. But thank you so much, um, Dr. Karma Chavez, for coming to Ohio State. And Pritha, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is really, really fun. Yeah, this thank you both so much. a good conversation. This has been great. Thanks.